Part two of the Light Princess from the Light Princess and Other Fairy Tales by George MacDonald. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Clive Catterall. Part two of the Light Princess. From the Light Princess and Other Fairy Tales by George MacDonald. Chapter Seven. Try Metaphysics. After a long avoidance of the painful subject, the king and queen resolved to hold a council of three upon it, and so they sent for the princess. In she came, sliding and flitting and gliding from one piece of furniture to another, and put herself at last in an armchair in a sitting posture. Whether she could be said to sit, seeing she received no support from the seat of the chair, I do not pretend to determine. "'My dear child,' said the king, "'you must be aware by this time that you are not exactly like other people.' "'Oh, you dear funny papa! I have got a nose and two eyes, and all the rest. So have you. So has mamma. "'Now be serious, my dear, for once,' said the queen. "'No, thank you, mamma. I'd rather not.' "'Would you not like to be able to walk like other people?' said the king. "'No, indeed. I should think not. You only crawl. You are such slow coaches.' "'How do you feel, my child?' he resumed, after a pause of discomfiture. "'Quite well, thank you. I mean, what do you feel like?' "'Like nothing at all that I know of.' "'You must feel like something.' i feel like a princess with such a funny papa and such a dear pet of a queen mamma now really began the queen but the princess interrupted her oh yes she added i remember i have a curious feeling sometimes as if i were the only person that had any sense in the whole world she had been trying to behave herself with dignity but now she burst into a violent fit of laughter threw herself backwards over the chair and went rolling about the floor in an ecstasy of enjoyment. The king picked her up easier than one does a down quilt, and replaced her in her former relation to the chair. The exact preposition expressing this relation I do not happen to know. "'Is there nothing you wish for?' resumed the king, who had learned by this time that it was quite useless to be angry with her. "'Oh, you dear papa, yes!' answered she. "'What is it, my darling? I have been longing for it, oh, such a time, ever since last night.' "'Tell me what it is.' "'Will you promise to let me have it?' The king was on the point of saying yes, but the wiser queen checked him with a single motion of her head. "'Tell me what it is first, said he. "'No, no, promise first. "'I dare not. What is it?' "'Mind, I hold you to your promise. "'It is to be tied to the end of a string, a very long string indeed, "'and be flown like a kite. Oh, such fun! "'I would rain rose-water, and hail sugar-plums, and snow-whipped cream, "'and—and and, a fit of laughing checked her, "'and she would have been off again over the floor "'had not the king started up and caught her just in time. "'Seeing nothing but talk could be got out of her, he rang the bell, and sent her away with two of her ladies-in-waiting. "'Now, Queen,' he said, turning to Her Majesty, "'what is to be done?' 
"'There is but one thing left,' answered she. "'Let us consult the College of Metaphysicians.' "'Bravo!' cried the king. "'We will!' Now at the head of this college were two very wise Chinese philosophers, by name Humdrum and Kopikek. For them the king sent, and straightway they came. In a long speech he communicated to them what they knew very well already, as who did not, namely the peculiar condition of his daughter in relation to the globe on which she dwelt, and requested them to consult together as to what might be the cause and probable cure of her infirmity. The king laid stress upon the word, but failed to discover his own pun. The queen laughed, but humdrum and copykeck, heard with humility, and retired in silence. The consultation consisted chiefly in propounding and supporting, for the thousandth time, each his favourite theories. For the condition of the princess afforded delightful scope for the discussion of every question arising from the division of thought, in fact, of all the metaphysics of the Chinese empire. But it is only justice to say that they did not altogether neglect the discussion of the practical question, what was to be done. Humdrum was a materialist, and Kopikek was a spiritualist. The former was slow and sententious, the latter was quick and flighty. The latter had generally the first word, the former the last. "'I reassert my former assertion,' began Kopikek with a plunge. "'There is not a fault in the princess, body or soul, only they are wrong put together. Listen to me now, Humdrum, and I will tell you in brief what I think. Don't speak, don't answer me. I won't hear you till I have done. At that decisive moment, when souls seek their appointed habitations, two eager souls met, struck, rebounded, lost their way, and arrived each at the wrong place. The soul of the princess was one of those, and she went far astray. She does not belong by rights to this world at all, but to some other planet, probably Mercury. Her proclivity to her true sphere destroys all the natural influence which this orb would otherwise possess over her corporeal frame. She cares for nothing here. There is no relation between her and this world. She must therefore be taught, by the sternest compulsion, to take an interest in the earth as the earth. She must study every department of its history, its animal history, its vegetable history, its mineral history, its social history, its moral history, its political history, its scientific history, its literary history, its musical history, its artistical history, above all, its metaphysical history. She must begin with the Chinese dynasty and end with Japan. But first of all, she must study geology, and especially the history of the extinct races of animals, their natures, their habits, their loves, their hates, their revenges. She must hold, hold, roared Humdrum. It is certainly my turn now. My rooted and insubvertible conviction is that the cause of the anomalies evident in the princess's condition are strictly and solely physical. But that is only tantamount to acknowledging that they exist. Hear my opinion. From some cause or other, of no importance to our inquiry, the motion of her heart has been reversed. That remarkable combination of the suction and the force-pump works the wrong way. I mean, 
in the case of the princess, it draws in where it should force out, and forces out where it should draw in. The offices of the auricles and the ventricles are subverted. The blood is sent forth by the veins and returns by the arteries. Consequently, it is running the wrong way through all her corporeal organism, lungs and all. Is it then at all mysterious, seeing that such is the case, that on the other particular of gravitation as well she should differ from normal humanity? My proposal for the cure is this. Phlebotomize until she is reduced to the last point of safety. Let it be effected, if necessary, in a warm bath. When she is reduced to the state of perfect asphyxy, apply a ligature to the left ankle, drawing it as tight as the bone will bear. Apply, at the same moment, another of equal tension around the right wrist. By means of plates constructed for the purpose, place the other foot and hand under the receivers of two air-pumps. Exhaust the receivers. Exhibit a pint of French brandy and wait the result. Which would presently arrive in the form of grim death, said Copykeck. If it should, she would yet die in doing our duty, retorted Humdrum. But their majesties had too much tenderness for their volatile offspring to subject her to either of the schemes of the equally unscrupulous philosophers. Indeed, the most complete knowledge of the laws of nature would have been unserviceable in her case, for it was impossible to classify her. She was a fifth imponderable body, sharing all the other properties of the ponderable. CHAPTER Eight. Try a drop of water. Perhaps the best thing for the princess would have been to fall in love. But how a princess, who had no gravity, could fall into anything, is a difficulty, perhaps the difficulty. As for her own feelings on the subject, she did not even know that there was such a beehive of honey and stings to be fallen into. But now I come to mention another curious fact about her. The palace was built on the shore of the loveliest lake in the world, and the princess loved this lake more than father or mother. The root of this preference, no doubt, although the princess did not recognize it as such, was that the moment she got into it, she recovered the natural right of which she had been so wickedly deprived, namely, gravity. Whether this was owing to the fact that water had been employed as the means of conveying the injury, I do not know. But it is certain that she could swim and dive like the duck that her old nurse said she was. The manner in which this alleviation of her misfortune was discovered was as follows. One summer evening, during the carnival of the country, she had been taken upon the lake by the king and queen in the royal barge. They were accompanied by many of the courtiers in a fleet of little boats. In the middle of the lake, she wanted to get into the Lord Chancellor's barge, for his daughter, who was a great favourite with her, was in it with her father. Now, though the old king rarely condescended to make light of his misfortune, yet happening on this occasion to be in a particularly good humour, as the barges approached each other, he caught up the princess to throw her into the Chancellor's barge. He lost his balance, however, and, dropping into the bottom of the barge, lost hold of his daughter. Not, however, before imparting to her the downward tendency of his own person, though in a somewhat different direction. For as the king fell into the boat, she fell into the water. With a burst of delightful laughter she disappeared into the lake, 
a cry of horror ascended from the boats. They had never seen the princess go down before. Half the men were under water in a moment, but they had all, one after another, come up to the surface again for breath, when tinkle, tinkle, babble, and gush came the princess's laugh over the water from far away. There she was, swimming like a swan. Nor would she come out for king or queen, chancellor or daughter. She was perfectly obstinate. But at the same time she seemed more sedate than usual. Perhaps that was because a great pleasure spoils laughing. At all events, after this, the passion of her life was to get into the water, and she was always the better behaved, and the more beautiful, the more she had of it. Summer and winter was quite the same, only she would not stay so long in the water when they had to break the ice to let her in. Any day, from morning till evening in summer, she might be decried a streak of white in the blue water, lying as still as a shadow of a cloud, or shooting along like a dolphin, disappearing and coming up again far off, just where one did not expect her. She would have been in the lake of a night, too, if she could have had her way, for the balcony of her window overhung a deep pool in it, and through a shallow, reedy passage she could have swum out into the wide, wet water, and no one would have been any the wiser. Indeed, when she happened to wake in the moonlight, she could hardly resist the temptation. But well, that there was the sad difficulty of getting into it. She had as great a dread of the air as some children have of the water, for the slightest gust of wind would blow her away, and a gust might arise in the stillest moment, and if she gave herself a push towards the water, and just failed of reaching it, her situation would be dreadfully awkward, irrespective of the wind, for at best there she would have to remain suspended in her nightgown till she was seen and angled for by someone from the window. Oh, if I had my gravity, thought she, contemplating the water, I would flash off this balcony like a long white sea-bird, headlong into the darling wetness. Hey-ho! This was the only consideration that made her wish to be like other people. Another reason for her being fond of the water was that in it alone she enjoyed any freedom, for she could not walk out without a cortege, consisting in part of a troop of light horse, for fear of the liberties which the wind might take with her. And the king grew more apprehensive with increasing years, till at last he would not allow her to walk abroad at all without some twenty silken cords fastened to as many parts of her dress, and held by twenty noblemen. Of course, horseback was out of the question, but she bade good-bye to all this ceremony when she got into the water. And so remarkable were its effects upon her, especially in restoring her for the time to the ordinary human gravity, that Humdrum and Copykeck agreed in recommending that the king to bury her alive for three years, in the hope that, as the water did her so much good, the earth would do her yet more. But the king had some vulgar prejudices against the experiment and would not give his consent. Foiled in this, they yet agreed in another recommendation, which, seeing that the one imported his opinions from China and the other from Tibet, was very remarkable indeed. They argued that if water of external origin and application could be so efficacious, water from a deeper source 
might work a perfect cure. In short, that if the poor afflicted princess could be by any means made to cry, she might recover her lost gravity. But how was this to be brought about? Therein lay all the difficulty, to meet which the philosophers were not wise enough. To make the princess cry was as impossible as to make her way. They sent for a professional beggar, commanded him to prepare his most touching oracles of woe, helped him out of the court charade-box to whatever he wanted for dressing up, and promising great rewards in the event of his success. But it was all in vain. She listened to the mendicant artist's story, and gazed at his marvellous make-up, till she could contain herself no longer, and went into the most undignified contortions for relief, shrieking and positively screeching with laughter. When she had a little recovered herself, she ordered her attendants to drive him away, and not give him a single copper, whereupon his look of mortified discomfiture wrought her punishment and his revenge, for it sent her into violent hysterics, from which she was with difficulty recovered. But so anxious was the king that the suggestion should have a fair trial, that he put himself in a rage one day, and rushing up to her room gave her an awful whipping yet not a tear would flow. She looked grave, and her laughing sounded uncommonly like screaming. That was all. The good old tyrant, though he put on his best gold spectacles to look, could not discover the smallest cloud in the serene blue of her eyes. CHAPTER Nine, PUT ME IN AGAIN It must have been about this time that the son of a king who lived a thousand miles from Lagabel, set out to look for the daughter of a queen. He travelled far and wide, but as sure as he found a princess, he found some fault in her. Of course, he could not marry a mere woman, however beautiful, and there were no princesses to be found worthy of him. Whether the prince was so near perfection that he had a right to demand perfection itself, I cannot pretend to say. All I know is that he was a fine, handsome, brave, generous, well-bred and well-behaved youth, as all princes are. In his wanderings he had come across some reports about our princess, but as everybody said she was bewitched, he never dreamed that she could bewitch him. For what, indeed, could a prince do with a princess that had lost her gravity? Who could tell what she might not lose next? She might lose her visibility or her tangibility, or, in short, the power of making impressions upon the radical sensorium, so that he should never be able to tell whether she was dead or alive. Of course he made no further inquiries about her. One day he lost sight of his retinue in a great forest. These forests are very useful in delivering princes from their courtiers, like a sieve that keeps back the bran. Then the princes get away to follow their fortunes. In this they have the advantage of the princesses, who are forced to marry before they have had a bit of fun. I wish our princesses got lost in a forest sometimes. One lovely evening, after wandering about for many days, he found that he was approaching the outskirts of this forest, for the trees had got so thin that he could see the sunset through them, and he soon came upon a kind of heath. Next 
he came upon signs of human neighbourhood. But by this time it was getting late, and there was nobody in the fields to direct him. After travelling for another hour, his horse, quite worn out with long labour and lack of food, fell, and was unable to rise again. So he continued his journey on foot. At length he entered another wood, not a wild forest, but a civilised wood, through which a footpath led him to the side of a lake. Along this path the prince pursued his way through the gathering darkness. Suddenly he paused and listened. Strange sounds came across the water. It was, in fact, the princess laughing. Now there was something odd in her laugh, as I have already hinted, for the hatching of a real hearty laugh requires the incubation of gravity, and perhaps this was how the prince mistook the laughter for screaming. Looking over the lake, he saw something white in the water, and in an instant he had torn off his tunic, kicked off his sandals, and plunged in. He soon reached the white object, and found that it was a woman. There was not light enough to show that she was a princess, but quite enough to show that she was a lady, for it does not want much light to see that. Now, I cannot tell how it came about, whether she pretended to be drowning, or whether he frightened her, or caught her so as to embarrass her, but certainly he brought her to the shore in a fashion ignominious to a swimmer, and more nearly drowned than she had ever expected to be, for the water had got into her throat as often as she had tried to speak. At the place to which he bore her, the bank was only a foot or two above the water, so he gave her a strong lift out of the water to lay her on the bank. But her gravitation ceasing the moment she left the water, away she went, up into the air, scolding and screaming. "'You naughty, 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 naughty man!' she cried. No one had ever succeeded in putting her into a passion before. When the prince saw her ascend, he thought he must have been bewitched, and mistaken a great swan for a lady. But the princess caught hold of the topmost cone of a lofty fir. This came off, but she caught at another, and, in fact, stopped herself by gathering cones, dropping them as the stocks gave way. The prince, meantime, stood in the water, staring, and forgetting to get out. But the princess disappearing, he scrambled on shore, and went in the direction of the tree. There he found her climbing down one of the branches towards the stem, but in the darkness of the wood the prince continued in some bewilderment as to what the phenomenon could be, until reaching the ground, and seeing him standing there, she caught hold of him and said, "'I'll tell Papa!' "'Oh, no, you won't,' returned the prince. "'Yes, I will,' she persisted. "'What business had you to pull me down out of the water, and throw me to the bottom of the air? I never did you any harm.' "'Pardon me. I did not mean to hurt you.' "'I don't believe you have any brains, and that is a worse loss than your wretched gravity. I pity you.' The prince now saw that he had come upon a bewitched princess, and had already offended her. But before he could think what to say next, she burst out angrily, giving a stamp with her foot that would have sent her aloft again but for the hold she had of his arm. "'Put me up directly!' "'Put you up where, you beauty?' asked the prince. He had fallen in love with her almost already, for her anger 
made her more charming than any one else he had ever beheld, and as far as he could see, which certainly was not far, she had not a single fault about her, except, of course, that she had not any gravity. No prince, however, would judge of a princess by weight. The loveliness of her foot he could certainly estimate by the depth of the impression it could make in the mud. "'Put you up where, you beauty?' asked the prince. "'In the water, you stupid!' answered the princess. "'Come, then,' said the prince. The condition of her dress, increasing her usual difficulty in walking, compelled her to cling to him, and he could hardly persuade himself that he was not in a delightful dream, notwithstanding the torrent of musical abuse with which she overwhelmed him. The prince, being, therefore, in no hurry, they came upon the lake at quite another part, where the bank was twenty-five feet high at least, and when they had reached the edge he turned towards the princess and said, "'How am I to put you in?' "'That's your business,' she answered, quite snappishly. "'You took me out. Put me in again.' "'Very well,' said the prince, and catching her up in his arms he sprang with her from the rock. The princess had just time to give one delighted shriek of laughter before the water closed over them. When they came to the surface she found that for a moment or two she could not even laugh, for she had gone down with such a rush that it was with difficulty she recovered her breath. The instant they reached the surface, "'How do you like falling in?' said the prince. After some effort the princess pouted out, "'Is that what you call falling in?' "'Yes,' answered the prince. "'I should think it a very tolerable specimen.' "'It seemed to me like going up,' rejoined she. "'My feeling was certainly one of elevation, too,' the prince conceded. The princess did not appear to understand him, for she retorted his question. "'How do you like falling in?' said the princess. "'Beyond everything,' answered he, "'for I have fallen in with the only perfect creature I ever saw.' "'Oh, no more of that. I'm tired of it.' said the princess. Perhaps she shared her father's aversion to punning. "'Don't you like falling in, then?' said the prince. "'It is the most delightful fun I have ever had in my life,' answered she. "'I never fell before. I wish I could learn. Do you think I am the only person in my father's kingdom that can't fall?' Here the poor princess looked almost sad. "'I shall be most happy to fall in with you any time you like,' said the prince devotedly. "'Thank you. I don't know. Perhaps it would not be proper. But I don't care. At all events, as we've fallen in, let's have a swim together.' "'With all my heart,' responded the prince. And away they went, swimming and diving and floating, until at last they heard cries along the shore and saw lights glancing in all directions. It was now quite late, and there was no moon. Mm, "'I must go home,' said the princess. "'I'm very sorry, for this is delightful.' "'So am I,' returned the prince. "'But I am glad I haven't a home to go to. "'At least I don't exactly know where it is.' "'I wish I hadn't one either,' rejoined the princess. "'It is so stupid. "'I have a great mind,' she continued, "'to play them all a trick. "'Why couldn't they leave me alone? "'They won't trust me in the lake for a single night. "'You see where that green light is burning? "'That is the window of my room. "'Now,' "'If you would just swim there with me very quietly, "'and when we are all but under the balcony, "'give me such a push up, you call it, as you did a little while ago, 
I should be able to catch hold of the balcony and get in at the window, and then they may look for me till to-morrow morning. With more obedience than pleasure, said the prince gallantly, and away they swam very gently. Will you be in the lake to-morrow night? the prince ventured to ask. Oh, to be sure I will. I don't think so. Perhaps, was the princess's somewhat strange answer. But the prince was intelligent enough not to press her further, and merely whispered, as he gave her the parting lift, Don't tell. The only answer the princess returned was a roguish look. She was already a yard above his head. The look seemed to say, Never fear, it's too good fun to spoil that way. So perfectly like other people had she been in the water, that even yet the prince could scarcely believe his eyes when he saw her ascend slowly, grasp the balcony, and disappear through the window. He turned, almost expecting to see her still by his side, but he was alone in the water. So he swam away quietly, and watched the lights roving about the shore for hours after the princess was safe in her chamber. As soon as they disappeared, he landed in search of his tunic and sword, and after some trouble found them again. Then he made the best of his way round the lake to the other side. There the wood was wilder, and the shore steeper, rising more immediately towards the mountains which surrounded the lake on all sides, and kept sending it messages of silvery streams from morning to night, and all night long. He soon found a spot whence he could see the green light of the princess's room, and where, even in the broad daylight, he would be in no danger of being discovered from the opposite shore. It was a sort of cave in the rock, where he provided himself with a bed of withered leaves, and lay down too tired for hunger to keep him awake. All night long he dreamed that he was swimming with the princess. End of Part 2 of the Light Princess